Good morning. Pleasure to see you this morning. Nice to be here. And it's nice that my computer's working too. That's always a bonus. Let's just open our time in a word of prayer. Father, we we do thank you, Lord, for bringing us here this morning, for giving us just the time to gather together, just to meet around your word, to be encouraged by your word, to be encouraged by your presence, Lord. And so we do so. We pray you would just speak to us, touch our hearts, Lord. Reveal the things within our mind and our spirit and in our hearts, Lord, the things that you want us to know. And so we just pray you would accomplish those things in the quietness of this time. We commit this to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, thank you, music team. I appreciate your opening. Um, and also the theme of love. Uh, I'm sure that's been on everyone's heart this week with a reminder of a Valentine's Day and uh, all the romantic notions and all the things that that brings to, to our minds. So um, not necessarily sometimes the things we speak of in terms of God's love, but it's a great prompt for this week to, to think about love and uh, just the way God loves us. Just for today, we're going to talk about this parable of seeking honor. And in context and in background, to give you a bit of a, a sense for what was happening, I'm going to read to you from Luke chapter 14, um, verses 1 to 5. It will give you some context of uh, just what Jesus was um experiencing at the time that he gave this parable, this teaching. So starting in uh, chapter 14 of Luke, so if you have your Bible, if you have your phone, or whatever you have available, you can open that up, and we'll begin reading at verse 1. One Sabbath, when Jesus went to eat in the house of a prominent Pharisee, he was being carefully watched. There in front of him was a man suffering from dropsy. Jesus asked the Pharisee and the experts of the law, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. So taking hold of the man, he healed him and sent him away. Then he asked him, If one of you has a son or an ox, and falls into a well on the Sabbath day, will you not immediately pull him out? And they again said nothing. One Sabbath when Jesus went to eat in the house of a prominent Pharisee, Jesus, it says, was being carefully watched. I believe that is a huge understatement. I would say... More, in my mind, he was being critically micro-examined from the people that were sitting around the table. Jesus was invited and more accurately entrapped for the purposes of publicly breaking the law so he could be arrested. This may seem strange to you since Jesus had criticized and denounced the Pharisees 
many times previously. But Jesus is not afraid or intimidated by their motives, which were well known to him. Rather, he chooses to challenge the experts and the Pharisees regarding the Sabbath. And he does that on their own turf. The setting is really more like a courtroom. One lonely man on this side opposing, faces an opposing side of a a large group of prominent lawyers and experts on the other side, anxious to huddle together to devour this person by their legal might and by their, their intellect. It's really a David and Goliath type of a scene. One on the outside that seems so unfairly unbalanced. But we see by the Pharisees and the legal experts' response to the question that Jesus raised, somehow it indicates the trap had not quite sprung and had its desired effect. Their responses to both Jesus' questions were the same. They remained silent. They had nothing to say. Good lawyer advice. Say nothing. Don't open your mouth. If he says something, don't say anything. Remain neutral. But saying nothing to Jesus' question is not remaining neutral. In the presence of Jesus, there's no fence to sit on and observe quietly without being drawn into the question that Jesus always prompts. And that is, who do you say that I am? And you can take the lawyerly position, I'm going to say nothing. I'm going to remain quiet. But Jesus says, Well, I'm waiting, and I'm very patient. And so, the Pharisees are left that day without responding to Jesus' question, and also the response to Jesus openly healing this poor man on the Sabbath. So this lovely little luncheon is the setting for which Jesus begins to teach the same audience about the parable of seeking honor. Today's parable. So let's pick it up in Luke 14, and we'll read it from verse 7 down to verse 11. When he noticed how the guests picked the places of honor at the table, he told them this parable. When someone invites you to a wedding feast, don't take the place of honor. For a person more distinguished than you may have been invited. If so, the host who invited both of you will come to say, come and say to you, give this man your seat. Then humiliated, you'll have to take the least important place. But when you are invited... Take the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he will say, Friend, move up to a better place. Then you will be honored in the presence of all of your fellow guests. 
For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. This parable, as you've noticed, does not begin with the classic, the kingdom of God is like. Although its meaning and its intent describe exactly what the kingdom of God is like, because it describes what the kingdom or what the character of Jesus is like. And so when we understand the character of Jesus, then we know what the kingdom of God is like. It's not really difficult to interpret its meaning. It's more like direct teaching rather than a story that draws a parallel to what's actually being said. Jesus is taking notice of the sinful character of the people around him. He's observing this kind of um, self-seeking importance and um, those people who desire recognition and they want to feel honor that comes from other men, from their peers. Recognize their prominent position in the pecking order that establishes itself around the table. Jesus may have thought, hmm, I can't let this opportunity slide past without saying something about how I feel when I see this among people that I love. And it's not the behavior that I love. It's not the self-seeking. It's not the selfishness or the, the pride or that that I love. But the people. And the people may be at heart just like you and just like me. People that I dearly love. And it's those same people that I'm willing to go to the cross and die for. Jesus' sincere teaching and correction at the core of it, the very core, is an act of compassion and love that requires great courage and great wisdom to be able to confront this sort of behavior and doing it in a loving way and doing it in a way that invites a lesson that we can learn and we can be transformed from. Such is the teaching of Jesus The parable is yet another example of Jesus revealing the kingdom of God principles that are, for the most part, upside down. They're counterculture. They're non-logical. And they're reasoned, if you think about it, to be defeating. Remember, Jesus was speaking to a room full of leaders. Leaders of the day, those who are responsible to set a godly example for the people, those who others looked up to, to establish that example. Those people who were extremely influential in the day. And really, there's only two types of leaders, two types. In the Gospels, Jesus often compares 
two kinds of leadership. What I will call worldly leadership and servant leadership. He describes worldly leaders as those who lorded over others and those who behave in a way that tyrants would behave over other people. These are people who get into positions of leadership for selfish reasons. To increase their wealth, perhaps, their power, their honor, and, and so on. We see people like that in the business world. And ever increasing as you move up the ladder and approaches to the corporate positions, do you find people that are very much about establishing honor and power and recognition for themselves. For the most part. Not in all cases, but in ever increasing. In order to get to that position, you would have had to crawl over a lot of other people and leave a lot of refuge in the wake. But, such it is. And you also see that, sadly, in in government. You see that sometimes in family. And even see that kind of behavior sometimes in churches. That kind of domineering leadership that is so common that many people don't even realize there's a different way to lead. But there is a different way. The way of Jesus. This servant leadership which Jesus taught, and he teaches it throughout the Gospels and in many, many of the parables that we've already looked at and we'll look at in the future. But more importantly than teaching it, Jesus exemplified it. He consistently modeled servant leadership and servanthood in everything he did. In his life and in his death, he showed it that he did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. If we want to understand servant leadership, then we will need to closely observe Jesus, how he lived, but also, more importantly, how he died. The Pharisees, in this particular story, failed to grasp the significance of that. Just as we often fail to grasp the significance of Jesus' teaching. In the same way, we see James and John, not Pharisees, Apostles and disciples, ones closest to Jesus, seeking positions of honor for themselves as well. Sitting at Jesus' left hand, his right in the kingdom, and in a lot of ways saying, I want to be superior to the other apostles when we get to glory. Of course, that led to anger and division, and as it would in any kind of setting today. If one of us said, I want to be the important person, and you guys can be the less important people, how do you think that's going to go? Well, nah, I don't think so. The humility of character is what Jesus is teaching and striving to communicate in his parable, which is much like the teaching that we encounter on the Sermon on the Mount. We encounter there in chapter 5 of Matthew these, these sayings, Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Who can understand such things and embrace these life principles 
and commit to follow them. In the flesh, it's hard just to even comprehend. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. The guests listening to Jesus' parable that day must have thought, okay, so you're telling me that when I arrive at the feast or the wedding, I should purposely choose the seating position of low esteem and sit with people of low honor and no social rank. Is that it? Is that it? And why is that? Okay, in case someone else comes along of higher esteem and the hosts say, he's going to take your seating position and I get bumped. And I must go to the end of the line. I don't know if you've ever flown anywhere internationally, but then sometimes you'll walk in and you'll see first class. You'll walk and you'll think, wow, those seats look cozy. And you'll walk along and you'll see business. And those seats look almost equally as cozy. And then you end up sitting where you are going to sit in the, somewhere in the back. Um, so you can imagine yourself sitting in one of those cozy seats. And um, all of a sudden, the flight attendant comes along and says, Oh, um, Mr. and Mrs. So, you're sitting in this gentleman's, this woman's seat. And so you humbly get up and you move to the cheap seats in the back. You take the seat of least importance. So the Pharisees were saying, okay, I think I got it. I think I understand. And immediately you go to this human reasoning and you say something like, okay, what's more humiliating? Being seen by my peers choosing the seat of the common people, those of low, low esteem, or being bumped by the host to it. And you say, hmm, well, actually it's both. Both would destroy my good reputation and my, and my public image. But the real question is, good reputation and public image as what? Then we have the kingdom consideration, the kingdom thinking. Who are we really trying to impress here besides everyone? Jesus is teaching the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, in that serving or servant leadership, particularly for the poor and underprivileged, is more important and it's also highly honored than this fleeting moment of social recognition, this fleeting moment of sitting in the first-class seats. And it's interesting, when you fly somewhere, you all get out of the airplane, and guess what? You got there at the same time. Presumably, I mean, the cheap seats are usually 15 minutes, maybe five minutes later, because everyone's got to... But you're there, everyone arrives safely, your food wasn't as good, but you're still there. Jesus reminds us of this. Mark chapter 10, verse 45. I came not to be served, 
but to serve and give my life as a ransom for many. So what is Jesus' parable message? What is the hermeneutic statement? There's a word we learned in class. And I've reduced the hermeneutic statement of this particular parable down to this. Rather than aiming for prestige, look for the place where we can serve and humble ourselves. That's the message of the kingdom of God. That's kingdom thinking. Furthermore, Jesus, through Paul, tells us this in the book of Philippians. Having this attitude in me, which was also in Christ Jesus. Attitude. It's more than just Okay, I have this new item on the list. I have all these laws and things I'm supposed to do. When I get to a wedding or feast, take the poor common seats. Check. Got that. All right? No. It's not like I have the list. I'm going to tick the box. Took the the cheap seats. I'm all good. It's more I want to take those seats. I want to take the position of low self-esteem. I want others to be lifted up ahead of me. I want to have this attitude which was also in Christ Jesus. It's an attitude of humility that Jesus was calling the Pharisees to and he calls us to as well. At the root, it's imitating Christ. Humility. We have this that follows that verse. Each of you should not look, each of you should look not only at your own interests, but the interests of others. We generally don't have a problem with our own interests. Those are things that come first. We default to those things. What do I want to do? How do I want to go? How much time do I want to spend? Who do I want to spend it with? Um, I'm not going where I want to go. I'm not going to stay. I'm not with the person I want to be with. I'm going to go with somebody else. I mean, it's all it's about me. You know, it's pretty easy to figure that out. And we all do that quite well. But consider this thinking that is radical, totally radical. Each of you should not look at the, your own interests, but the interests of others. So now, it's not about me, it's about other people. And it's about others around me. And not necessarily my buddies, or the people that I like, or as we say, the Cool Kids Club. It's everybody now that's included in that group. But this is the kicker, this one. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility considers others better than yourselves. It's one thing to consider other people and include them in what we want. But to look at other people and think they're better than me 
requires us to think completely different. It's not necessarily a ticking the box. This is a complete attitude change. This is a complete perspective realignment. This is not about me. Now it's about Christ and it's about other people. Completely. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than ourselves. It's not a passive thought. It's not a weird concept. But we're called to really believe it and to practice it. And here is the kicker. How is it possible to humble ourselves and to internalize this verse into our practice? How is that possible? To internalize this learning of the parable, practice humility and servanthood. How can I apply is often the perplexing question, the homiletics application. How can I do that? I have the hermeneutics down, but the homiletics is driving me crazy. How do I apply this to my life now? Lord, I understand what you're saying, and yes, I agree completely. I've tried, and I keep coming back to this selfish self. Is that you sometimes? That's me a lot of the time. A lot of the time. If I was honest, and I guess the other option is say, I'm going to be dishonest and say it's not true, but it's honest. So it's true. That's how I think and behave sometimes. Sad to say. We have already considered this thinking is totally radical against modern culture and personally illogical. So how do we internalize his humility, the parable insights into our lives? I mentioned the Sermon on the Mount because it's been on my heart and my mind recently. And I think it provides insight and it also provides part of the answer to this question. Matthew chapter 5, verse 3 and 4. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for there is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Those two verses lead to verse number 5 of Matthew chapter 5, which says this, Blessed are the meek, the humble, for they will inherit the earth. So, what is it to be poor in spirit? And why mourn? This thinking has led me to Psalm 51, which I've spent time in meditating in, and some ways living in. The setting of Psalm 51 is when the prophet Nathan came to David after he had committed adultery with Bathsheba. And the prophet Nathan comes and he drops the bomb on David. He drops the bomb and said, 
this is what you've done. It's not a secret. I know about it. God knows about it. You know about it. Now it's out in the open. And so Psalm 51 is a response to that. Poor in spirit. The psalmist says this. He says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions, wash away all my iniquity, and cleanse me from sin. With that, I have an intimate knowledge and awareness of my present sinful condition. David was confronted by this. Nathan confronted him in a way that just dropped him to his knees. We, in the same way, in our sinful condition, in our awareness, our, our personal insight of ourselves, are brought to a similar place. I am intimately aware, and I have knowledge of my present sinful condition. I am poor in spirit. Poor in the sense that it's just me and you, Lord, and I'm humble before you. I don't have anything that I want to call of value other than the fact that I'm in your presence and we're being totally open and honest and transparent together. And so, within that, I enjoy the poorness of spirit and the honesty of being in God's presence. Those who mourn, blessed are those who mourn. I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you and you alone have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so you are proved right when you speak and you are justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, and from that time my mother conceived me. Surely you desire truth, my inner parts, and teach me wisdom in the innermost place. Poor in spirit, God, you have made a truthful and accurate assessment of my position before yourself. I am exposed. And I am standing up and saying, that's me. I'm not hiding. I'm not trying to come up with an excuse. I'm saying simply, you've made an accurate and truthful assessment of who I am. And I can mourn in that. Mourn in the sense that I'm in the security of being in a relationship with the Lord and I'm vulnerable, but I'm safe in my vulnerability because I am in God and God is in me. He is giving me the security of being poor in spirit and mourning before him in that position. Which leads to verse 10 and 12. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore in me the joy of salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. And so, 
in my humility before God, in my recognition, in my, in my accurate assessment of myself, this is all that I desire. A pure heart. A steadfast spirit. To be in your presence and experience the joy of your salvation. That is all that I desire. Nothing of myself, nothing of the things that would, would elevate me, but only to have a pure heart, a steadfast spirit. I want to be in your presence. I don't want to run from it. I want to be in you. And I want to experience joy in my salvation. And so that leads to living reality of a humbled life. Having gone through the poorness of spirit, I have mourned, I've experienced only simply what I desire in the simplicity of God's presence. And now I choose to live in the reality of a humbled life. Then, and only after considering the previous verses of Psalm 51 from verse 1 through verse 9, considered those things, internalized that, and accepted that for who I am, then, conditionally, I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will turn back to you. Save me from my blood guilt, O God, who saves me from my tongue, and sing of your righteousness. O Lord, lift up my lips and my mouth and declare your praise. I want to live and I want to breathe in the reality of a humbled life as a servant leader. So this is the key learning that I took from this particular parable, which is just simply verse 12. The summary of what the parable states. And in verse 12 he says, For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. And he who humbles himself will be exalted. And one final thought before we call the worship team back up. Humility is the product of gaining an appreciation of God's grace. And what Psalm 51 is, is a story of God's grace. It's a, it's a, a psalm of reconciliation for David who was taken out of the bottom of the barrel, exposed of his grievous sin, and restored, and brought to a position of fellowship and communion with God through the grace of God. Was David deserving of any of that? No, none of that. He was undeserving. But so within grace do we find that forgiveness and that reconciliation and within the same grace do we find humility, the thing that God, Jesus here, is teaching us to emulate. So I'll call the music team back up and um, complete their last, their last song for today and then I'll come up and close in prayer. Our prayer today is, Lord, teach me how to be your humble servant. 
Let's just bow and pray. Father, we thank You for for bringing us to the place where You've given us ears and You've given us eyes. You've given us intellect that we can comprehend the things that You're revealing to us in our spirit. We pray, Lord, You just press upon us and help us to choose to yield ourselves in obedience to You. Help us to choose what we know and what we believe and what we trust and what we can have assurance in is the right and best decision for our lives. And so give us strength and give us courage to, to oppose even the things of ourself that would choose to elevate us and put ourselves ahead of other people. We pray for the attitude that we would view other people even as radical thinking as better than ourselves. Give us that that thought, Lord, and that courage and that wisdom to do so in obedience to you. So we once again, we just submit ourselves before you as we part. We thank you for what you're doing in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Our prayer room is just down the hall on the left-hand side, just through the doors. You'll see a, a, a Sunday school room with prayer room. There's a sign on it. If anything from today's message has touched you, if you want to pray about humility in your lives, if you want to pray about anything of, in your lives that's pressing on you, make yourself available. The prayer room will be there in, in five minutes to pray with you. Thank you.